Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere, whether they're eBooks or earrings. Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And I'm here with Kate Bell from the Marijuana Policy Project. And we are going to talk a little bit about the industry, a little bit about uh, from a legal point of view. But first, let me just welcome Kate. Thank you for being on the program. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to talk or I'd like to kind of start with just understanding a little bit about your background. I'd love to know kind of how you got into the cannabis space, how you got involved in the Marijuana Policy Project. Uh, And then we can talk a little bit about the project and the program and, and the organization and what its focus is, because it has a really interesting one. And I think we should we should understand how it fits into kind of a, the whole the whole world of cannabis and, and marijuana. So give us a sense of your background. Sure. So I um, used to be a criminal defense attorney based in Baltimore, Maryland. And so I really come to this with the goal of keeping people out of the criminal justice system. Maryland actually used to have what they call an affirmative defense for medical cannabis. So you had to be arrested and then prosecuted and then hire me and go to court and try to prove you were a patient rather than having real protections uh, for people using medical cannabis. And of course, it was better than nothing. Yeah. But uh, so I represented a lot of patients and really got to see how um, that impacted people on the medical side. But also just the idea that we are wasting tax dollars and time that could be spent solving violent crimes, locking people up for marijuana made no sense, especially when you consider how disparate the enforcement is based on race on top of that. And, you know, nobody should be going to jail for marijuana. So that's kind of how I got interested in this. I've been with MPP for about two and a half years now. Okay was working in the state policies department, doing lobbying with a number of state legislatures. Now I'm actually general counsel, so I'm working on some legal for the ballot initiatives that we're doing, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as general 
legal stuff. So sort of back to my roots a little bit in terms of actually practicing law. You know, I also had the great fortune of graduating from law school in 2007. Mm -hmm. So thanks to the economic collapse and its impact on the legal industry, it's been a little bit of a roundabout journey to get here. But And so tell and, and tell us a little bit more about the policy project. What what is the what are what is the specific focus and what are the outcomes that you're looking for as an organization? Sure. So MPP has been around for over 20 years now, okay. um, and this was like a crazy fringe idea, of course, when it started mm-hmm. that we were going to legalize marijuana at the national level. Yeah. So we've come a long way. MPP is responsible for the ballot initiatives that legalized marijuana in five of the now nine states plus D.C. Mm-hmm. that have legalized adult use. So we worked on the Colorado initiative in 2012, as well as Alaska in 2014, and then most recently Maine, Massachusetts, and Nevada in 2016. And right now we are supporting the Michigan initiative which is adult use for the ballot this year, as well as a medical initiative in Utah. And we've helped pass many of the medical marijuana laws around the country as well. Great. And when, and when you support these efforts, what? how are you supporting them? What do you actually do? Are you working with local, local groups that are hands on the ground? What involvement do you have? So when the initiatives, of course, are as a legal matter, separate entities Mm -hmm. um, that are formed specifically for the purpose of passing that particular initiative. Our campaigns team helps with the drafting, bringing stakeholders together, trying to come up with initiative language that makes everyone happy as much as possible, whether that's the advocates, the existing industry looking at concerns that opponents might have, all of those types of things to work on the drafting of the initiative. And then, you know, we help hire campaign staff, bringing in contractors to work on advertising, things like that, really sort of consulting and helping out through the whole process. There are other initiatives that we provide other support for. For example, we may help an initiative or a local group with fundraising. We might help them out you know, with consulting on language for their initiative, different things like that. So it, it depends, you know, we've certainly helped out with a lot that we weren't, you know, sort of behind the scenes as well. And then for the states that don't have initiatives um, or where there isn't one being worked on, we also do a lot of direct lobbying. So we are, for example, leading the coalition in Illinois. So we're working with a broad coalition of organizations, but we're leading the charge in terms of adult use in that state. And that is through a lobbying effort at the state legislature. Got it. And maybe I think it would be helpful since you have a little more detailed kind of legal understanding of some of this stuff. But the folks that don't quite understand these different terms, because I think we we talk about adult use, we talk about recreational use, we talk about medical use. What are these different categories and how much are they the same and how much are they different from state to state? Sure. So there are 30 states that have what we call effective medical marijuana laws. That means that qualifying patients, which may be anyone whose doctor recommends medical marijuana, or they may have to have one of a list of specific conditions, can get a recommendation from their doctor. And then in those states, they can either cultivate medical marijuana in their own home, or Mm -hmm. they can have a caregiver cultivate it for them. Most of those states also have a dispensary option, so businesses, uh, storefronts, where they could go purchase medical cannabis. In addition to those 30 states plus D.C. that have what we call effective medical marijuana programs, there's a number of other states that have some 
actually, it's 49 states now in total that have some form of acknowledgement of, of medical marijuana. But in some of those other places, it's very limited. For example, they might have a provision that says if you're caught with CBD, low THC oil, who knows how you got it? But if you're caught <laughs> with it, we'll give you a break and we won't criminalize you for it. Right got now. It. Where that's supposed to come from for yeah. these states don't have in-state in access, you know, isn't clear. Yeah. But there's at least some provision in law. The only remaining state that doesn't have anything whatsoever at all is Idaho. Ah, okay. Interesting. Um, I, was, I was trying to figure out who my who my 50th yeah, state was. It doesn't, Kansas right. was on that list until very recently. So now it's Idaho stands alone there. And then in terms of what we call adult use is the same thing as what other people call recreational. It okay. basically means that any adult... 21 and over can legally possess and cultivate, or in some cases also cultivate cannabis. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a little confusing because there's nine states in DC that have legalized adult use, but two of those, DC and Vermont, only allow possession and home cultivation. There's no stores. So it yeah. doesn't fit into what we would call tax and regulate, which means that you can legally purchase it as well. Got it. They've set up a system of licensed regulated businesses that yeah. are allowed to cultivate, process, and sell cannabis, which is what most people are thinking about when they're thinking about, like, I mean, for example, a state yeah. like Colorado. Yeah, yeah. And certainly the, from a business point of view, it's, it's, it, does the state have the, the regulation and the system in place to be able to support a real economy of growing, processing, dispensing to various consumers. Do you find that most states kind of go through go through that process of legalizing a very basic use and then eventually kind of work their way up? Or do some states go, go all the way all at once? How has this played well, out? For the most part, they'll do medical first and decriminalization where mm -hmm. it's still illegal, but possession for adults is treated like a civil infraction, like a traffic ticket, yeah. as opposed to a criminal offense. So states usually will do medical and decrim before they do adult use, although that hasn't always been the case. Mm -hmm. Washington state, I believe, is the is the state where they sort of skipped over medical yeah. and then added medical endorsements later. But it is certainly I mean, so New Jersey, which at the time of this recording mm -hmm. is is <laughs> considering passing an adult use bill, yeah. has not decriminalized yet. Yeah. So they would be somewhat unusual in sort of skipping that step and going straight to a licensed, taxed, regulated market without doing decriminalization in the middle. The model in D.C. and Vermont is unusual. Okay. D.C. got stuck there because of Congress. Mm -hmm. So there was a ballot initiative, ballot initiatives because of the weird character of D.C. Yeah. and its congressional oversight can only do certain things. And before the D.C. Council got a chance to pass a full tax-regulated market, Congress stepped in and blocked them. So we're stuck in this weird limbo. And then there's a lot of problems because it's not legal to sell it. Yeah. But people want to buy it. There's a huge demand. Yeah. So there's this massive underground economy that's not – and D.C. is missing out on all the tax revenue. Yeah. As well as, you know, consumers being able to buy laboratory tested, properly labeled products and know what they're getting as opposed to not, yeah. <laughs> um, unless they grow it themselves. In Vermont, um, it does seem to be more of an interim step. And they're seriously considering going ahead and, and moving to a fully tax licensed regulated market there. Got it. And, and now, are, are you involved at all at the federal level or look, looking at the federal level, or are you focused very much state to state right now? Oh, yes. I mean, yeah. so we have um, a federal lobbyist. We're very much involved in the efforts in Congress as well. Mm -hmm. You know, the States Act in particular is very exciting. 
because it has a strong bipartisan support. Mm-hmm. Unlike, you know, there's a ton of different bills in Congress that have sort of different levels of support from different parts of the political spectrum. Yeah. The States Act would basically end federal marijuana prohibition and leave the issue up to, as you may have guessed, the states. Yeah. And so that would be a great step forward, and it would allow the states to continue to be, as we lawyers like to say, laboratories of democracy yeah. and experiment with different policies. It wouldn't yeah. impose legalization from the federal level on states that didn't want it. Would it handle the interstate commerce issues? Because uh, I know, I mean, the big issue that most businesses face right now is you have to, you know, do everything inside the state because you can't cross state lines. Would this, would the States Act address that? You would have to comply with state law. So, like, if you were in Colorado and Colorado allows the sale of products manufactured in other states, you could ship from your facility, you know, in Nevada, into Colorado, as long as that was allowed by those states' laws. What you couldn't do is ship from Colorado to Idaho, Yeah. right? And if you did, then not only would Idaho have something to say about that, but likely the federal government would as well. Because just like we have the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, yeah. Firearms, and Explosives, their job is to, for example, like crack down on people shipping cigarettes from like North Carolina to New York. Yeah. It's one of those states. It's li- cigarettes are legal in both states, of course, but yeah. New York has much higher taxes. And so the federal government intervenes where people are trying to uh, get around state. Yeah. 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 Got it. So let's talk a little bit about because of the situation that we've been in for the last de- several decades in terms of criminalization of some of these things. You know, we've got a lot of people in the business world that have been involved in cannabis, marijuana in different ways. And a lot of them have picked up records uh, of various sorts. They've run, they've run amok with laws. And, and, and now they're in a position of trying to get involved in this cannabis industry. In fact, they have a huge amount of knowledge and a huge amount of experience in the things that we need to make this market viable. I guess what's underway? How do you see some of that stuff being addressed? You know, not only from a sort of social justice and just, you know, what's good for society, but from a business point of view, how do we address the fact that we've got this population of folks that are in this situation. Yeah, well, so the initial reaction of lawmakers was to put like blanket bans on anyone with any sort of drug-related criminal record being in the industry, in some cases, any record at all. Mm-hmm. Although there's some states where bizarrely, you couldn't get into the, at least at a certain point, you couldn't get into the cannabis industry with a cannabis conviction, but if you had some other like violent crime or something, you weren't <laughs> subject to the blanket ban. Or, so it didn't necessarily always even make sense. Mm-hmm. And I think we're starting to see that get rolled back now. Um, mm-hmm. For example, D.C. recently loosened up on their restrictions, which had previously been a blanket ban. And one of the arguments for that is that because the prohibition was enforced in a racially disparate manner, that it's going to have a racially disproportionate impact. So you might have someone in the industry who was involved in the illegal marijuana industry previously, but they don't have the conviction for it, whereas a person of color who did the same thing does have the conviction, and so they're barred. So I think a lot of lawmakers are really starting to see that this is not a just way of of starting this new industry. And they are still concerned about gangs and cartels being involved in the legitimate industry. So there's still concerns about people who have been engaged in illegal activity recently or on an ongoing basis versus someone who got into trouble years previously. And those people are going to be treated differently. But certainly businesses want to have knowledgeable people, um, especially like on the cultivation side. I mean, on the retail side, you know, you bring in somebody with high end retail experience, 
you know, they're going to have all that customer service experience and you can sort of train them on the cannabis aspect. But for things like cultivation, obviously there's a lot more interest and there's a weird thing that happens at the beginning you know, so when the cultivator is first open, they've got to get seeds yeah. from somebody. <laughs> I've, always, I've always wondered this. Like, how do you start? Yeah. Like, what's, what's ground zero? It's, it's the immaculate conception theory. Yeah. I mean, basically what ends up happening is the regulators sort of look away for a little while. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they have seedlings. Yeah. And then the seed to sale tracking starts. Yeah. Um, and then after that, you know, they can't be bringing in any mystery seeds yeah. that aren't accounted for in the online tracking system. Yeah. But there has to obviously be a window because it doesn't fall out of the sky. Yeah. So what else, from a business point of view, what else do you think people that are in, getting involved or thinking about getting involved in the cannabis marijuana market industry, what else do they really need to understand about the current laws or, or where the laws are going or what's going to impact them with legislation and um, kind of in- industry regulation? Well, it's not just legislation. Like you said, industry regulation. I mean, MPP stays involved in the states where we had ran initiatives to make sure that things are actually implemented properly because there's ample opportunity for regulators to screw things up, to make businesses have such onerous regulations that they can't make any money to make, you know, patients or consumers jump through a bunch of hoops so that they don't end up leaving the criminal market, which is one of the reasons that the public voted for the initiative in the first yeah. place. Yeah. You know, so that's something that we're certainly involved in. And it's also something that businesses need to be paying attention to. They need to be going to the, re- you know, these meetings, public meetings, usually uh, that the regulators are having um, and offering their opinion and their expertise and as a business person. Yeah. And if they don't have the ability to do that, then they need to, you know, be hiring a lobbyist or working with an industry group or working with, you know, us or someone who's helping them sort of navigate the process because that's going to have a huge impact on their day to day. And it takes a long time, even once the law is passed to go through all of that. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting industry now because it's kind of your, your biggest competitor can also be your biggest collaborator when it comes to, you know, have, having, you know, getting policies addressed, changed, you know, the right way. You know, so I mean, I you know, I'm sure all this will will continue to be quite dynamic as the market grows. But right now, there's as much I think cooperation between a lot of these businesses because it's really about setting up the industry in the right way as much as it is about head-to-head competition. Um, if I yeah, could just comment on that, so it depends. In some states, they have something much closer to a free market, and in other states, there's a very limited number of licenses. Obviously, if you get one of those licenses, that's great for you for a while. But what I think some folks competing for those aren't thinking about is what happens when national prohibition falls. Because then you're you're not going to just be competing with the you know dozen yeah. other people who got the same license you did in that state. You're going to be competing with all the companies in these other states who have had more competition and maybe have been developing their brand or developing products that consumers really like now because they've had the sort of crucible of that competition. And now they're going to be able to ship their products into your state. It's going to be a state trade war after that, you know, when (laughs) people trying to restrict interstate commerce because of, you know, product development. Um, Yeah, no, it's a fascinating kind of dynamic. And certainly these states that have had products or had had regulation, legislation, regulation in place for a while, have a bit of a jump start, not only in terms of developing their market, but actually setting up the companies inside their state as being one step ahead of all the other states for national 
national products, national distribution, national sales. Well, I guess what, you know, when you look at the regulation side, what are some of the challenges of implementation? Because I think people do focus a lot on this, you know, where is the legislation, what laws are on the books, but then actually putting that into practice in terms of putting in the regulation, the actual systems, the departments, the, the groups that actually issue the licenses, like all that kind of stuff. What are some of the things that you have seen kind of go awry or seen to be challenges for states when they actually, once they pass a law, then what happens for them? Well, some of the sort of more cutting edge things that I think we're starting to see develop now are things like social use. So obviously you can go to any number of bars and have a drink with your friends, whereas cannabis has been treated as this like shameful closeted thing where you have to be shut up inside your own house. And places like, for example, Las Vegas, which has tons of tourism and people come and they buy their cannabis and then they don't have anywhere to use it. And they're not supposed to be consuming it outside in public legally. So the city is kind of saying, okay, Nevada, like we need to get it together. We're going to do something about this to create some sort of like lounge or place for people to go. Denver is now experimenting with, with that as well. Um, So there's a number of places that are, that are really looking at that issue. You know, Childproof packaging is something that sort of mm. took a while for states to like realize the importance of that. And now that, but that was a huge business opportunity yeah. for companies that saw that coming and started developing. And like, I, I can't get some of these things open. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> Adult proof, as we like to say. Because yeah. I was in Denver and actually went into a store and mm. like, it's amazing. So, and that also illustrates that you don't have to touch the plant, you don't have to go yeah. through this licensing process to be able to get into this space and make money. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways. I I have found that, you know, a lot of the innovation, a lot of the new fascinating business ideas that have huge potential actually don't touch the the plant product. You know, they're, they're a product, ancillary product or service. Uh, I was talking to one company that does training of dispensary workers, you know, on, on very particular issues around, you know, how to deal with dispensary issues, you know, it's, and it's a whole business and it's, it's training, it's a training business, but it just happens yeah. to be focused on the cannabis space. Well, and another thing that I think business owners need to keep in mind is like paying attention to what the illicit market is and how they're going to compete with that. Because they need to understand that like, while most consumers would rather know what they're getting and go to a legal store, they are still, yeah. at least initially when the industry is getting off the ground, competing with the traditional guy, yeah. right? And particularly in places like, for example, New York City, there's a whole HBO show about this yeah. um, messenger bike delivery guy, right? Yeah. And so having home delivery, for example, where people are used to having that service provided to them, and if that's not allowed in the regulations, then consumers are going to not be happy because they've gotten used to that. Some states have tried to restrict the type of products or the strains or things mm-hmm. like that a lot, which is also a concern. For what reason? You know? What what have they? What's their thinking behind trying to restrict them? So there's some states have sort of dragged their feet or had concerns about edibles. I mean, certainly, okay. I think initially in some states where there wasn't regulation on serving size and how much could be in there, and there were uneducated consumers coming in, there may have been some people who had an unpleasant experience. And thankfully, no one is going to die of yeah. a cannabis <laughs> overdose, right? But you want to have childproof packaging and and appropriate serving sizes and labeling and all that in place, certainly. But then there's other things like, for example, in the medical market, there's a number of states now that have restricted whole plant, which is really unfortunate because it drives up prices for consumers a tremendous amount. Because it's like, you know, buying a bag of chickpeas versus buying a fancy container of hummus. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. It's the same substance yeah. in there, but all of that extra processing makes it so much more expensive. And if you're a patient Got it. on yeah. like a fixed income, not working and it's not covered by insurance and you're struggling to afford medical cannabis, you know, maybe a lot better for you to be able to buy the flower and make your own edible or, mm -hmm. you know, vaporize that or whatever, as opposed to being forced to buy processed products. And I think the state theory is that it seems more medical if it's, you know, in yeah. like oil form or whatever. Yeah. But what they're not realizing is in addition to costs, like allowing patients to vaporize or smoke allows them to titrate their dose. Yeah. So exactly. they don't have yeah. to like take this whole pill and end up too high and like mm -hmm. not able to function in their daily lives. They just need to take a little bit when they're feeling they're not feeling well and they can titrate their dose better that way. So there's some unintended consequences, but that is sort of one problem that we've seen as well. Yeah, I've certainly seen the as we move from kind of figuring out ways to legally serve existing cannabis users who have, you know, particular doses and particular use cases that they're they're looking for as we move to more, you know, medical and even just general public, yeah, microdosing, you know, different formats, being able to consume it in different ways, you know, I think is where a lot of the market opportunities are, but I think is where it's going to challenge, I think, a lot of these sort of state regulations and how the states are kind of thinking about their markets and thinking about how they're controlling. Well, what else happens in the, from a regulatory point of view, I guess, as we see this market expand, as we see, you know, the number of states and then, you know, at some point, you know, we're hoping here a, a, a federal legislation in place. What do you predict or what do you suspect is going to happen from a regulation point of view that people should be aware of? I mean, how, how are we actually going to manage this market to the general benefit of society? Well, so it's important for people to understand, especially people who are lucky enough to be in these states that have already gone like yeah. down this path. The market doesn't expand by itself. That's what we do is create new markets by, you know, passing these laws in new states. Yep. And a lot of people don't realize how alive and well Reefer Bandis is in a lot of these state legislatures. Yeah. You know, I always give this example of Maryland decriminalized marijuana possession, but they didn't include paraphernalia. So people were getting a, like criminal charges with a plastic <laughs> baggie and a civil citation for the marijuana. So we fixed this. We like, you know, help pass this law to decriminalize paraphernalia. And they're, the governor vetoes it. They're doing the veto override. And this lawmaker stands up and it's like, there's going to be blood on the highway. And you're just like, I mean, this is what you know you deal with as yeah. a lobbyist is people who grew up with this reefer madness propaganda. Yeah. But this is the devil's lettuce. Yeah. And you know we have to work very hard. And it requires resources in order to change these laws. So we need the industry to continue to support this work so that we can continue to move forward and also to be good ambassadors, you know, and to sort of think about the fact that unfortunately everything that they do reflects on yeah. the industry and the movement as a whole. Yeah, I think, and I think that that's a, an important point for the people involved in the industry that, you know, we talk about a lot is, you know, we, our ability to, you know, grow and make this a, a highly, you know, profitable and successful market is going to be based on how we behave and how we, how we approach these issues and how we deal with them. And, and it's going to be challenges, right? And we're going to face 
we face the forces out there and we face, you know, various opinions in public about uh, the product. But, you know, focusing on education, focusing on helping people understand the positive uses of it uh, is going to be what helps move a lot of those folks. Any particular, I guess, strategies or if, if I'm an a entrepreneur or a business person looking to get involved in cannabis in a market that's not legalized yet or is on the path of legalization, what are some things I can do to actually help participate in that process and help move that process along? How do, how do I get involved? Yeah, well, as I mentioned, I mean, so in, in Illinois and some other states that we're working in, we are helping lead coalitions of organizations. So groups that are interested in social justice, like NAACP or ACLU, are involved with us in some states. Industry groups, so people who maybe are in the existing medical industry or who want to get into the industry, are often involved in those efforts and sort of bringing together those various stakeholders so that we can lobby with one voice and also have the hopefully financial support of some of those folks and organizations in order to do that is very helpful. And so that's really, you know, and also thinking about, so as this issue has become more sort of mainstream and popular, a lot more people have been jumping into the industry. Obviously, yeah. the people who were signing up to raise their hand that they were committing federal felonies initially yeah. <laughs> were the true believers, right? Yes. The people who had been in the drug policy reform movement for years, people who like watched their loved one die of cancer, yeah. who benefited or could have benefited from medical marijuana. And now we're seeing a lot more sort of mainstream business interests coming in. And there's also increasing concern from a lot of people about the fact that prohibition has had a devastating impact on poor communities of color. Yeah. And yet the industry is not all that diverse. Yeah. And so people are trying to get into that now. I think certainly being sensitive to that mm -hmm. and trying to ensure that you are recruiting a team that it's diverse, that you're working with people who are local to the state because state elected officials really like when yeah. people in their state are benefiting from this and not just out of state companies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking at the community impact, people don't realize how terrible zoning is yeah. like. It's really difficult to get a property that's zoned for a cannabis business yeah. in a lot of jurisdictions. And so being able to like have the local government on your side, like going in and working with them, prepping them for this, figuring out how you can benefit the local community mm -hmm. so that when you present to the zoning board, you've got people who haven't been able to get jobs, who have been struggling, coming and saying, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to have a living wage. I'm going to be able to support my family, as opposed to people who didn't know you were there and start freaking out about, you know, marijuana in their neighborhood. Yeah. So there's a lot you can do to sort of be a good citizen that will help you in your application process. Yeah. And good points. I think it's something that people don't think about or don't aren't sensitive to in terms of what is the impact they're going to have on the local community and how can, how can you integrate better into the um, into the group that you're going to be serving and, and ultimately be your customers. So we're about out of time here, Kate. Uh, this has been uh, really great, very educational for me. I, this is uh, a lot of uh, good insight and explanation on what is happening. If people want to find out more about the policy project or want to be able to contact you, what's the best way to, to do that? 
Yeah, so um, we are at MPP.org. I definitely encourage everyone to sign up for our alerts since we keep everyone informed about what's going on legislatively and policy-wise in their state as well as at the national level. I can be reached at K-Bell, K-B as in boy, E-L-L, at MPP.org. As of this recording, we are actually about to launch a new membership program for Mm -hmm. cannabis businesses so that they can get up-to-the-minute policy information from us and, you know, in appreciation for their support. So I'll, I'm happy to share more information about that as well. Great. I'll make sure that the, the, your email and the links and everything are in the show notes so people can get a hold of that. And uh, yeah, the newsletter is great. I would highly recommend people sign up for that when they get a chance. Uh, Kate, thanks again. This is a pleasure. We will, uh, we'll record another episode in the future here when, as things develop, I would love to, um, love to stay in touch. All right. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.